Thanks, sir. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. All right. So, last time I was here, and I appreciate everybody's patience with, uh, and I appreciate Terrence finding a complimentary text to supplement what we're doing, but not go over this. That way you get a little bit more Bible. Uh, but last time we were talking about Jude 20 through 23. If somebody would read that for us, just to refresh our memories, Jude 20 through 23. Thank you so much. And of course, we talked about last time that most of what Jude had has done to this point is talk about uh, false teachers. Nearly three quarters of what he has written in this book uh, is dedicated to providing vivid descriptions, uh, telling you what a a false teacher looks like, talking about the dangers that uh, that that his readers were facing. And and we talked about. Um, now he has switched to giving us some instructions on how to 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 protect ourselves, to prepare ourselves uh, when we find that we are confronted by worldliness in the church. Um, and so the first thing that we talked about last time that that I taught was that we are to build ourselves up. Verse twenty, um, we are to build ourselves up on our most holy faith, um, and we're reminded that. Problems, when they're properly dealt with, when they're properly addressed, they're not obstacles that we can't get over. They're not insurmountable. Actually, obstacles are, are, can be, with the proper mindset and the proper understanding of God's Word, dealt with in a way that makes them opportunities in disguise. Um, and then we read James 1, 2 through 5. Somebody go ahead and read that again, just for a quick review. James 1... Two through So James weighs in and says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we use the example, you know, of, of uh, being UL listed, uh, you know, some, being tested and being, being uh, given the opportunity to prove what you're made out of. And then it says here, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete. Of course, perfect and complete here, you know, when we see perfect in the Bible, you know, it is complete, it, it fully, fully equipped, if you will, lacking nothing. And so we are to count it uh, joy when we fall into various trials and tribulations that, because that gives us an opportunity um, to make an opportunity out of a, of a trial. You know, you, you think about what's a, our attitude says it all, you know, as far as how we go about things. If something goes wrong, do we treat it as a way 
to, to get better or do we treat it as a way to get bitter? Um, and so we've got to build ourselves up. Um, and we do that through spiritual growth. Um, and we achieve spiritual growth through the, the ardent study of the Bible and the practice of the applications that we learn there. Um, and Jude is placing the responsibility solely on the readers. Um, you know, now understand, doesn't mean that he expects them to go alone, but he does expect them to do their part. God has his part, we have our part. Uh, and then the second thing that he talked about was pray in the spirit. You know, we should, we should constantly be in prayer, not 24-7 not because how would we live our lives? That's not what uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says or what it means. Somebody read that for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. may be able to quote it without looking it up. <laughs> yep. Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. <laughs> See, you were right, but you, you needed that confidence. So <laughs> but pray without ceasing. That means that we should be in the constant habit of prayer. Um, and then today we're going to pick up with the third point, if I remember where we left off. Um, we need to keep ourselves in God's love. So we're going to pick up from there. Uh, somebody read verse 21 again, please. In Jude, Jude 21. All right, thank you, sir. So his, his third instruction was for Christians to keep themselves in the love of God. John wrote in 1 John 5.3. Well, let's just go ahead and read it. Somebody turn to 1 John 5.3. Thank you, ma'am. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Um, Obedience is the proper response. Jesus declared, and I think Daryl brought this out last time, John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Intimacy with God requires submission, not just sentiment. Remember, intimacy means a very close, deep, familiar familiarity with with someone you know and, and, and again I think that we we look at we've narrowed the definition of that word um, into the, the the romantic or or that area but but intimacy means a very close personal relationship and if we're going to have that close relationship with God we must be submissive to God. We must submit to his commands, not just say that we have a relationship, say that we love God. We've got to do it. We've got to do what he asked. If you think about ancient Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God, 
And that covenant relationship was founded upon and maintained by love. Um, and God's love was demonstrated through things like you see in the Exodus where he, he brought them out of Egyptian bondage. And he, he gave them laws in this, this covenant. Um, and, of course, we've talked about in this class before, and we use the illustration of parents. Parents set rules because rules are good for children, because rules keep children out of trouble. God sets rules for us because he loves us, and those rules are for our benefit and keeps us for lack of a better description, out of trouble. Uh, and when the Israelites, back to their example, when they kept God's commandments, they were blessed. And when they disobeyed his laws, they were punished. And similarly, Christians, we need to maintain our relationship with God through honoring the covenant commands that are revealed in the New Testament. You know, you think about Old Testament examples. Uh, men like Noah. Tell me about Noah. He done what God told him to do. What did he do? He built, he built an ark. What did he do? What did he do also while he was building an ark? Preach for a hundred years. How successful was he? Eight people. Preach for a hundred years. Eight people. Y'all got on, got on the ark. Um, do you think that was hard on Noah? Absolutely. I would imagine that it was. Um, because, you know, I mean, you, you know, you, 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 you keep preaching and preaching and preaching. Go ahead. We have, you know. Exactly, and you you know, and you think about what are we supposed to be doing? Also, we're you know certainly what Wilton is talking about praying for people, but also we're supposed to go out and and and, and preach and teach the word to people. We're supposed to find the lost and teach them about the gospel of Christ. And men, you know, you, you think about Noah. He preached for a hundred years. You know, apply that to your own life when you talk about talk to your neighbor about God, about Jesus, and they're like, ah, you mentioned it once. Noah, Noah preached for a hundred years, you know, and, and, you know, just learn from his example. What about Joseph? Not, not Mary and Joseph, but Joseph, um, yes. Yes. 
It, you're absolutely right. What about in the middle? You remember the men in the middle? Because, it, I mean, he got sold by his brothers. That's bad enough, you know. Uh, of course, they were, they were nice enough not to kill him because that was their first, that was their first idea was, you know, well, we really don't like him. We're, we're going to kill him. No, we can't kill him. You know, Reuben come in, and he was the voice of reason, which was not much reason. And he, he said, let's, let's sell him into slavery. Um, and then what happened? He got sold into slavery and wound up in whose house? Potiphar's house. What happened to him in Potiphar's house? And and what 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 happened with the wife? Because he honored God because he was doing what he was supposed to do. Then what happened to him? Who was he in jail with? You're doing good. Yeah, the the baker, the baker and the cupbearer. And and then one um, the cupbearer made him a promise, made Joseph a promise. You know, and Joseph said, "Remember me when you get out of here." Because, you know, the baker's end wasn't, it was, he didn't go much further in the story. But the cupbearer went back to Pharaoh's house. He said, remember me. And, of course, the cupbearer, yeah, I'll do it, you know. And then, and then Joseph got forgotten, and he spent some more lengthy time in prison. And then finally, Pharaoh was having these dreams, and somebody said, you know, can, is there anybody that can interpret these dreams? And the cupbearer's like, you know, there's this guy in the jailhouse. I'm sure he not, didn't use that, that phrase, but, you know, and, and then he become the second in command. The idea with Joseph is, despite all of that, that trial, what did Joseph do? He maintained the right attitude. He falls, Noah, Joseph, they fall right into what James says about count it all joy when you fall, in, fall into trials because it allows you to show what you're made of, it allows you to 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 it allows you to turn it into opportunity to serve God. So while things difficulties happen to these men, you think about Samuel, you think about Daniel, they obeyed God in times of extreme difficulty. You just think about what we just laid out about Joseph's life and how difficult he was accused. Of, of, of his brothers didn't like him. He, he was accused of, of, of um, things that, that he wasn't guilty of, but, the, but he, was, he was made a promise. He was imprisoned. What happens in the end? He's made the second most powerful man in Egypt, and because of that, he is able to bring his family to Egypt and take care of them during the famine and there is where the children of Israel uh, flourished and grew in the land of Goshen and his brothers his brothers come back and says you know hey we, we treated you wrong and what did Joseph say and here's it goes about the attitude what did Joseph say and you've studied your Bible I'm pretty you know y'all pat him on the back <laughs> Thank you, Christine. <laughs> All right. And so these men 
they kept the proper attitude. The proper attitude is to serve God even in the face of extreme difficulty. Uh, their stories are preserved in the scriptures so that you and I, we know that we can do the same. I hope that I don't face the things that Joseph faced or the things that Noah faced, but you know what? Every one of us in here has difficulties in life, and we need to maintain the proper attitude because every, every crisis is an opportunity to glorify God, and faithfulness is possible even in the worst circumstances thanks to the help that God provides. Any questions, comments, concerns, funny anecdotes? I'm more of a fan of Joseph, but... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right. If God hadn't have been with him, you're exactly right. God, God is with us. We need, to, we need to make sure. He's going to do his part. We need to make sure that we do our part. Um, and then somebody read... Let me go back over here real quick. Hold on. On 22. Um, and have some compassion, making a distinction. We're, go we're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to talk about mercy and, and the application of mercy. Um, and I think that actually that's where we're going next. So if, uh, Brother Rick, if you want to read it. 22. Um, and go ahead and read 23. So Jude's fourth point was for his audience to remember the people that people in their lifetime, they're going to have personal failures. Personal failures do occur. We are going to stumble. Remember, we've been talking about false teachers, but now are any of us perfect? We're not. And so he's, so he's drawing a distinction here between false teachers and those who stumble. When personal failures occur, we should, we should be penitent. We should repent Penitence is in order, but when we stumble, despair is not because if we approach our Father and we ask for forgiveness, He is just to forgive us. Um, and I want to make a point here. Christians in that day and time, they were, they were waiting for the return of Christ uh, they would watch and wait. Um, we're 2,000 years removed. They constantly lived with the Lord's return in view. 
I don't want any hands to go up, but just have just reflect on yourself. 2,000 years, because let me tell you something, our, our schedule and God's schedule don't always made up. You think, about, you think about that blank page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, the intertestamentary period, that's 400 plus years that, 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 that just went by. You know, when you deal with God who is eternal, and then we are not eternal, you know, average life expectancies, mid-70s, uh, I think it's actually because of everything that's happened in the last few years, it's actually shrunk a little bit uh, and, and lowered the average life expectancy. But we should be watching and waiting for Christ's return. And we should not let the amount of time that has gone by weaken our fervency, our effort in watching for Christ to return. Um, we need to constantly maintain a right standing with God. Now, that right standing does not require infallibility. Not that we're condoning sin. We're just acknowledging that we are going to make mistakes. When we make mistakes, we need to be quick to rectify that with God, to come to God, ask for forgiveness. Um, but uh, it's not... That right standing with God does not require infallibility, but it is conditioned upon godliness. Um, and so these first century Christians, they lived with the Lord's return in view. And it was a powerful incentive to purify their lives and immerse themselves in doing good. Somebody read 1 John 3, 1 through 3, please. 1 John 3. One through But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for when we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We need to work towards being Christ-like. We need to work towards being godly. And let me tell you something, brethren. We need daily to think about the return of Christ, not when it's going to be. Not, not if it's going to be, not when it's going to be, but our condition when it does occur. What, go ahead. Absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, I, you know, I think of a movie trope. 
No, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. I liken it to like some of these movie tropes that you see where, um, you know, the parents go out of town and the kids, there's been several movies that kind of revolve around that large, but the, the parents go out of town, leave the kids at home. What do the kids do? They throw this huge party and then, and then the, the, the hijinks of the movie, most of them are not family friendly, but the hijinks of the movie is at towards the end, um, they're in a rush to try to get everything put back in place before the parents come walking in the door. Uh, and that's exactly what you're talking about. That's exactly what the world would do um, is that if we knew the exact date, we would live it up until, you know, about an hour before, and then we'd all fall to a knee and ask for forgiveness. And, 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 but we, we need to be godly throughout our entire lives. We need to make that effort. Again, we're going to make mistakes. We don't condone those mistakes, but we need to acknowledge that we will make those mistakes, and then we need to know what to do about those mistakes. Um, and I think a lot of our problems in the world today is because we have lost sight of the return of Christ because we like things now. We like things, you know, you think about it. When I was a kid, we would watch cartoons on Saturday morning because you had to wait till Saturday morning. Um, you know, they didn't have a cartoon channel. You couldn't just, now they don't, now I don't, you just pull it up on your phone. You don't even have to wait for the cartoon channel. You just pull whatever you want to up on your phone. When I was a kid, you had to wait till Saturday morning and then try to catch the TV before Dad got up. And then when you, when you were watching, they were always trying to sell you something. They said, please order with your parents' permission and allow what? Six to eight weeks delivery. Okay, for those of you who are good at math, six to eight weeks is what? Yeah, a month and a half to two months. You're exactly right. Now, if somebody told you you was going to have to wait a month and a half to two months to order something today, what would you say? No. Matter of fact, where do you work? What do you do? You pick groceries because they can get on their app right now and, and they, can, they can basically type in, I want Michael to pick up. <laughs> And then about four hours later, they can get it. We can get on, and, and Amazon, they don't even have two-day delivery prime guaranteed anymore, but still, you can get it quick. We live in a world which is constantly trying to give us more faster. Understand that God has a timetable. And we don't know what that timetable is. And we need to be careful not to let the world, with all of its conveniences and all of, all of the, you know, just you know, try to have it now, try to have it now. What, when did man fall? What caused man to fall? Is because the serpent said, threw in a lie, said, you shall not surely die because he knows that when you eat it, you'll become like him. We want things better for ourselves. We want, you know, but understand, God has our best interest in mind. If we do it God's way, we're going to get everything that we need. We're going to get every good and perfect gift comes from God. And we need to do it God's way. But we live in a world where it's just quicker, cheaper, faster now. And we need to be careful not to let what we think is a large time period in 2,000 years cause us to become complacent and cause us to become weakened in our faith and, and, and allow worldliness to rise up 
in the world, but also in the church. The absence of this, this expectancy that Christ is returning leads to the rise of worldliness within the church today. So, we need to be careful. Now, real quick, Brother Ricky asked a question, and we're going to go to verse 22 now. Um, Jude's fifth and final instruction or exhortation was that his readers be merciful to one another. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus linked a person's happiness to his compassion for his fellow man. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You read that in Matthew 5, verse 7. James indicated that a lack of consideration for others would also have a bearing on your eternal destiny. When In James 2.13 he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And this, if you think about the case of uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, this is, this is exactly the case. The rich man found himself in torment due to the fact that he neglected the needs of the beggar. Um, these verses explain why Christ classified mercy as one of the weightier matters of the law. You see that in Matthew 23, 23. Understand, and this I think too, is something that we as a church not just Dover, but the world over, we need to be careful because if it is good to extend mercy to others in times of physical need, how much more should mercy be shown in times of spiritual need? We will jump in and lend to the physical needs but we also need to make sure that we jump in and lend to the spiritual needs. And Jude used this trait to describe the proper response his readers should have towards those who were influenced by false teachers. Um, mercy, understand, mercy does not negate or set aside accountability. Mercy does rather hold people accountable in the most loving and supportive way because we can't condone sin. But then again, we don't want to see anybody caught up in sin. And so while we can't condone it, we should try to help people out of it. And we need to be loving and we need to be supportive. Mercy does not demand its pound of flesh. It's God's place to judge and to punish. It is our place to measure up to God's standard and act in a manner that he has prescribed. Um, we need to seek beneficial change in those whose thinking and behavior are errant, goes against God's will. And so if Jude first, he calls on mature Christians to be merciful to those who doubt. Um, don't raise your hands, but, but has anybody in here ever had some doubt? I, you know, I, I'll tell you, I mean, I have. Um, 
it's crucial to understand, though, that there is a difference between doubt and, a, and unbelief. Uh, doubt involves momentary confusion. Unbelief is more of a settled conviction. Um, you know, you think about great men like Elijah, John the Baptist, they experienced brief bouts with doubt. Um, but when they faced their fears, when they worked through them, their doubts become a means to stronger faith. Uncertainty, now watch this, uncertainty is typically the beginning of thought because you're starting to ask questions. Well, what does asking questions do? It gets answers. And if you ask questions and you turn to the Word of God and you turn to those who are educated on the Word of God, and again, no man's going to get you to heaven, so verify everything that you hear. But questions lead to answers. It's certainly not asking the question is not going to get you an answer. So questions lead to answers. Unbelief is typically the end of thought. I'm done. I've made up my mind. Those who doubt... Understanding that distinction between doubt and unbelief, understand those who doubt, they're not to be chided. They're not to be chastised. People who are confused on some point of doctrine need patience and kindness from those who are stronger in faith. Real life example, I recently learned of someone who's near and dear to me who has been attending a denominational church. You think about, obviously we're all in agreement that that's probably, that's that not probably, that's God, word of God, that's not where they need to be. But what are you going to do? You're going to scold them? Push them away? No, they have doubt. They have questions, things that have happened that have caused them to ask questions. And so now, what do they need? They need somebody stronger in faith to show them love and kindness and be willing to sit down with them and open the Bible and answer their questions and show them what God said. And remember, that's our job, never to, never to win an argument, but simply to be tour guides of the Bible, if you will. Lead people to the answers and let the Bible speak for itself. Um, don't berate them, don't belittle them because of their lack of understanding. We need to remember that teaching and time put together will resolve most honest doubts. Um, a spirit of gentleness in dealing with such matters is far more effective than intimidation. You know, I mean... You going to open the Bible for them, or you going to beat them over the head with it? On the other hand, and I think this goes to Brother Ricky's question, uh, there are times when subtlety simply will not do. Uh, you know, if someone is asleep in a burning house, you, you, there's no time to go, wake up, we probably need to leave. <laughs> if someone is in a burning house... 
you know, we've got to take quick action. There is a sense of urgency. And, and, and you know, this is clearly the case if someone has progressed beyond doubt towards that edge of the cliff of unbelief. And so, you know, Jude, you know, he, he kind of envisions like flames of hell flickering around the feet of somebody who's just one step from falling off in, into the fiery lakes. Um, that person must be snatched from the fire if he is to be saved. So, you know, understand it all comes down to doubt and unbelief and, and where that person is because doubt, love, kindness, patience, gentleness, unbelief, that's a house fire that they need to be saved from. Swift action and straight talk are the only hope. Um, and then it says, others save with fear. And I think we're going to have time to get through this. Finally, Jude discusses the need for mercy relating to false teachers themselves. Christians are commanded by Christ to love their enemies. Agreed? And that includes even people who are attacking the faith. Because let me tell you something. It is possible to care about an individual without approving of his or her actions. And I think that's where we run afoul, especially with some of the hot topics in today's, in today's world. You know, we, we, we don't balance. I disagree with your position, but I love you. Um, Jude warned his friends to make sure that they mix their merciful efforts to recover false teachers with their own spiritual safety. Let me ask you something. Who in here has flown on an airplane? We will have a show of hands on that one. All right, who has actually listened to the safety briefing? <laughs> yeah, well, you listened the first time, uh, at least. Some of you may listen more, but what do they tell you? In the case of an emergency where cabin pressure diminishes, a mask will fall from the ceiling above. In the case of the deployment of the masks, make sure to do what? Put yours on first. Why? You can't save the person next to you if you can't save yourself. How many, another example, how many people have you seen go out and try to save somebody that's drowning and then what happens? Or they get out there and... takes them down too. We've got to be careful because how many times has someone attempted to save another person from physical danger only to be overcome themselves? And love's reckless abandon of concern. It's good to love people, absolutely. It's good to want to save people, absolutely. But we need to make sure that we do it in a manner that doesn't put us on the edge of danger ourselves. Um, you know, love's reckless abandonment of concern for, for ourselves, man, what a magnificent display of what is best in us. But greater caution is in order when the soul is placed in harm's way. We need an added measure of discretion because Christians can become the partakers of the very sins from which they attempt to rescue others. You know, I, I, I think about early on when I, I knew that I needed to make a change 
and I knew that I needed to, to, to live a life that was pleasing to God, and I got connected with a man through a, a mutual uh, acquaintance, and I have great respect for him. He's passed on now. I have great respect for the man. Um, he was definitely sincere. But he told me one time, and I, and I always had an issue with this, he said, I used to evangelize in bars. I was in, what if there was some weakness within him that just be careful when you attempt to rescue others? Um, you know, I would agree with that. Real quick, I'm going to keep going because we're almost done. Jude illustrated this point. If you think about how the, the Bible, Leviticus chapter 13, dealt with how to deal with leprosy, you know, we should use the same because what? They had to burn the clothes. Don't, don't, don't catch that, that disease yourself. Uh, the point was that precaution should be taken with dealing with that plague, and it should be dealt with with dealing with that plague, when dealing with the plague of sin. So how do we do this? Uh, we get back to basics. We read our Bible. We pray without ceasing. We obey God's commands. We're merciful to those who are in need with physical and spiritual needs. So thank y'all. Hopefully you got something out of that. <laughs>